Man, it has been such a rich morning in the presence of the Lord. Worship has just gone on and on, and we will go on and on tonight uh, from five to seven. My name is Zach. For those of you that don't know me, I'm the lead pastor here at Antioch, and I'm excited today because we have a friend of our church family going to bring the word today. Uh, in 2013, God put it on our hearts as a church to plant another church, similar to what we're doing in Lake Cities, but to plant a church in Ann Arbor, Michigan. A number of people from our church went out, including the Sudans over there. Sudans, give everybody a wave. Jessica, right here on the front row, was part of that launch team. They launched out and planted in Ann Arbor, and I've gotten the joy over the last eight years to be on their board and to be a part of that church. That church has since gone on to plant a couple other churches in the region, in the Detroit area, and through that process of being on their board, uh, got to meet Juwan, who's going to preach today. And just instantly uh, felt a, a connection. I think to know Juwan is to love Juwan. You, you guys will see what I mean in a moment. Uh, and so just through that relationship, we had talked about, hey, what well, if you came down and led some worship for us? Because he and his wife are incredible worship leaders. And then through that, we we're like, well, if you're going to come down and lead worship, let's have you preach too, because he can bring the word. So I'm really excited because I'm excited for all of us to hear what God's put on his heart. We're going to be continuing the Ephesians series. But I'm also excited for all of us because of what this means. This means that a dream that God put in our heart seven years ago, eight years ago as a church to plant another church, to send out people. They sent out, they were able to plant a church and that church has been able to plant other churches and their people coming to know Jesus, people being discipled, families and communities being transformed through dreams that God planted in your heart and mine eight years ago now coming to fruition. So with that, if you would give John, Juwan a welcome like he is an uncle uh, of the family. Stand up, come on Juwan. It's awesome. Okay, so just pretend you are home here. We're for you. You want to take your shoes off, kick back, relax. That's great. You just feel at home. I'm going to pray for you and then be excited to hear God's word. Jesus, thank you for Juwan and Jessica and their family. Thank you for what you're doing in the Ann Arbor, Detroit region. God, thank you that we get to be connected uh, to a broader church family of people uh, seeking to love you and to love people and to make your name known uh, throughout our nation and the nations of the earth. I pray you'd fill Juan with his spirit and you'd open our hearts to your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. 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 Thank you so much. Thank you. I am so thankful to be here. Um, <clears throat> things look terribly different in Michigan in regard to, um, is that, is that, is that my, my family up there? Okay, all right, I'm going to touch on that in just a second. Um, yeah, they're gorgeous. Uh, things are terribly different in Michigan, and to come to Texas, and this may seem hard to believe, but like, I got like Texas in my heart. Like, I'm just like a, I, I genuinely feel like family every single time I'm here. Um, I'm sorry about this, Mike. My wife told me to grow my beard out. And it's just me. Um, but just to kind of give you a little background of kind of how I came to know Antioch, I was asked to uh, help lead worship for five days in Detroit. And what's so cool is I worked in Ann Arbor, which is about 50 minutes away from Detroit. Uh, I lived in Belleville, which was about 48, maybe 45 minutes away from Detroit as well. And I was asked to go there to sing, and I'm singing for five days. And unbeknownst to me, at this uh, Life Builders ministry, 
uh, Antioch was there helping and serving and loving the people in the community. And um, I was a CCA, and for those who don't know what it is, it's a city carrier assistant, which means I wasn't like a full-fledged postman. I was like an like a assistant postman. So I had to work on Sundays. for So for about a year, uh, I wasn't able to go to church, which is very unfortunate. And we didn't have all the live streaming benefits that we're kind of seeing more popular now. All that to be said, I'm going to give a shout out to the Sudans on this one. As I get done leading worship, uh, Jason comes to me and says, hey, man, I really appreciate you leading worship. You should come visit our church. And I said, hey, dude, uh, you know, I work in Ann Arbor, which is like an hour away from here. And um, I work on Sundays. And he said, that's weird because our church isn't in Detroit. We're just coming to help out. Our church is in Ann Arbor. I said, okay, well, that's weird. I said, but hey, I'm a city carrier assistant. And I work on Sundays. I got to deliver Amazon. You guys got to get your selfie sticks, right? So, so I said, I can't do it. And I said, I, I usually get off about like five o'clock on Sundays. And Jason says, funny you should say that because our service starts at five o'clock and we're not too far away from your office. Not knowing that the lady who was serving me nacho cheese and Doritos was my wife. And I, and I, and I had no idea that, that God was going to bless me whether I wanted him to or not. Long story short, I joined it with Antioch. I love the values. I love how Antioch truly does uh, preach and live out the gospel, um, that there are people who are concerned with discipleship, something kind of very foreign to me, very new to me. Um, and, 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 and Antioch, and I'm sure you guys have heard this a million times, the, the movement has this tendency to feel very like family-like, even though it could be a large church or we're spread out in different areas, there's this close-knitness to the point where, and we joked about it at dinner earlier, is that I wasn't really used to the way things were in Antioch, how people just go and sleep over other people's houses when they go visit different places. And I'm like, you stay in somebody else's bed with somebody else's pillow sheets and, and you use their shower and their bar of soap? And I'm like... It's like, yes, yeah, Antioch, we're family. We're about, you know, being communal and, and, and all that. And I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm new to this. And I absolutely love it. And I'm so thankful that God allowed good people like the Sudans, who were, I would argue, spirit-led to help lead me to my wife, which has subsequently allowed me to have my beautiful son, Micah, there, my little black Brazilian son there. Um, I'm sure that'll benefit him later on or something like that. And now we have another daughter on the way in July. Um, I'm very thankful. I'm very thankful. You'd be surprised when you are being led by God, when you are being used by God, when you just have enough decency, like my friend Jason, my brother Jason, to go and just talk to somebody about Jesus, tell them about church. Tell them about the love of Christ, how it could radically change their life. That is not my sermon today, but I just wanted to let you guys know that. Um, today, we're going to be coming out of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 32. And if you don't mind, I want to give a little bit of an exposition kind of dump here. And, and don't be frightened by that. All good movies start off with good exposition kind of dumps, you know, all this information like Star Wars, 
all those things. I'm kind of going to go through all that and just give a little background about Ephesus, this church, this city. Um, I'm going to begin to dive in uh, to our passage today. Ephesus was an ancient port city whose ruins can now be found today in Turkey, right? The city was once considered the most important Greek city and the most important trading center in the Mediterranean region. It was most famous for its Temple of Artemis, or as the Romans would later call it, the Temple of Diana. This nearby Temple uh, of Artemis was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. And many travelers from all walks of life would take their pilgrimages to the Temple of Artemis to worship the goddess of fertility. Many theologians peg Ephesus as a place not too different from a modern-day New York, filled with diverse people groups. And the church at Ephesus reflected this diverse demographic in their congregation, a mixture of Jews and Gentiles alike. And as Paul is writing this letter to this church at Ephesus, he is not writing as an outsider. Many people believe that Paul was the one who helped plant, or if not, was the main one who helped plant the church in Ephesus. So he's not writing as an outsider. So when we're reading through these scriptures or reading through these verses, I want you to think of it as a spiritual father writing to his spiritual children. Does that make sense? I'm going to go through chapter 1 through 3 and just give a quick summary, and we're going to go right into chapter 4. In chapter 1, Paul tries to help the church recognize the rich blessings of salvation and how God has chosen us before the foundations of the world. He points to the lordship of Christ, very important, and how all things are under the authority of Christ for the benefit of the church. Then we move into chapter 2, and it's only by God's grace that we realize we have been saved, that we are now dead. We were once dead, excuse me, and now we have been made alive with Christ. And in chapter 2, uh, and it kind of mixes a little bit into chapter 3, there's a theme that emerges as, as, as Paul is writing to this very diverse congregation, he, he pleads with them that they would understand the mystery and the importance of the unity among Jews and non-Jews of the faith, that both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news are now children, sons and daughters of God, children who can fully experience the depth, the width, and the height of God's love. Which brings us to chapter 4, where after Paul has very carefully explained the identity that we have in Christ as the church, and that, and that the church essentially is about Christ. It is to bring glory to Christ. And as he continually explains the importance of us maintaining this unity that's needed, Paul then takes a turn into the practical and explains in detail the importance of living out this truth we have obtained. 
I like the way Paul does it too. Paul does it, it he, 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 he's so practical in chapter um, four that he doesn't leave much to the imagination. He's so specific in what it looks like to have Christ-like behavior in verses 17 through 32 that I can personally, as a pastor, appreciate that when you're reading the scripture, sometimes it can get kind of cloudy, right? You got to do some research. You're talking to somebody and they go, what does this mean? You go, hold on. You turn to your phone, Google, what does this mean in this verse? I mean, some things can get very complicated. You know how it is in that first part of Matthew. Some of you guys tune out, right? It's, it, it gets muddy. But I like how in this point, Paul makes it as simple as possible, practical as possible. Paul does us a solid and just says it like it is. Let's go to verse 17. We're talking about this life that we're living now. This is a life for God. It's not a life for ourselves. Verse 17, with the Lord's authority, I say this, live no longer as Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused. Verse 18, their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life of, uh, that God gives us because they have closed their minds. They have become hardened in their hearts against him. Verse 19, they have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that what Paul is talking about in verse 17 through 19 mirrors a lot of what we see today. It's kind of like, and I haven't watched it, but if you have, no shame, no judgment. I think about like The Bachelor or The Bachelorette, and they're like, they, they, they like really dramatize this show where there's, I'm just, I'm going to speak for the Bachelor um, part, right? They really like dramatize the show and, 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 and there's this guy who's trying to figure out who he's going to make his wife to be, right? Like who's going to be his wife. And the way he figures it out is by essentially kissing and groping and, 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 and rubbing against everything with legs to figure out, is this the right one for me? Is, is this the one I want to spend the rest of my life with? It's absolutely ridiculous. And I know some of you enjoy that. But, but a lot of what Paul is saying here is so similar to what we see today. In verse 17, I like what it says in the Amplified. It says that Gentiles are living, this is what Paul would say, in the futility of their minds. What does it mean to be futile? It means purposeless purposelessness, or it has no purpose, it is without meaning, and he is saying that the mind of the Gentile, and I don't want you to assume this is some um, ethnic thing of the people, but it's the mindset that those who are away from God have, the spirit of the world, right, this, 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 this spirit of carnality and, and, and secularism, right, he's saying their minds are full of nothingness, they have no purpose, there is no meaning, it is vain. This goes against everything Paul has laid out in chapter 3, reminding us that God has a purpose for us. God has a plan for us from ages past that the life we live now is not meaningless. I used to be a skeptic, an agnostic. I had a weird phase in my life. I watched a few too many YouTube videos and I just kind of got, you know, a little off, all right? It happens, okay? 
You go from like watching soldiers coming home to like, is the Bible true? I don't know how that thing happened, but I had this, this season in my life. I would argue was hopelessness. Because if God doesn't exist, we're just stardust, bumping into each other. Um, I don't want to get too sidetracked, but, but um, I talked to a lot of people when I used to work in Ann Arbor. It's a college town. U of M is a pretty big school, and a lot of people will say, well, I don't really believe in God. I believe in science. And I go, I believe in science. And I believe in God. I don't think they're against one another. But the problem is if you remove God from the situation, you have science, right, if you will. But science can't tell you anything ethically or moral. It can't tell you that stealing is wrong or lying is wrong or rape is wrong. It can tell you how it happened, when it happened, or why it happened. But it can't tell you that it's wrong. And I look at the world that we live in now, where people, their minds, I like the way he says it here in the NLT, they are hopelessly confused. They are wandering around in darkness. This is kind of interesting to me because it reminds, I watch a lot of 80s and 90s movies. I'm a nerd. I'm a geek. And um, it, it kind of makes me think of those old apocalyptic movies. And there's children here, so let's be wise about it. But there's this thing that happens in these apocalyptic movies that right when everybody finds out the world is getting ready to end and, and there is no meaning, there's no purpose, the, 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 the meteorite is about to clash into the earth. What is the first thing that they do? Indulge themselves. We'll just word it like that. That's the first, when there is no meaning to your life, when there is no purpose, the only thing that you desire, the only thing that you can be led into when it's not spirit-led is self-service. Anyone who is not led of the spirit, who does not truly know God, only has one direction they can ultimately go in in their life. It is full of self-indulgence. When you don't know God, you don't know your purpose. You're unable to see life beyond yourself. And Paul is telling them, don't think like this. Don't be like this. To understand the love that has been poured out upon mankind, the grace, the gospel. And when you don't know your purpose, the only life you can live is self-service, pleasure. You essentially become nothing more than a wild animal, groping in darkness to whatever is sensual and feels good. Again, it mirrors very similar to what we see today. It mirrors a, I would argue, a demonic proverb that you would see um, Satanists, uh, you see that certain Satanists, they have this on their shirts and, and we're praying that they come to know Jesus. But there's a proverb that they hold to and it's called, do as thy wilt shall be the whole of the law. And essentially the idea is whatever makes you feel good, whatever makes you feel pleasure, that is what's right. It's this hedonism, right? That, that's the true purpose in life. Pleasure, joy, absence of pain. 
That's the godless life. You go, Juwan, give me an example of something similar to that. I'll give you an example. There was a recent toilet paper shortage not too long ago. Very exciting, yes, I know. And during this toilet paper shortage, and I'm saying toilet because somebody says I say toilet. I don't care. But this, this toilet paper shortage, there was a situation where, I don't know if you saw some of the videos, but there was like older ladies trying to go get toilet paper. And like people were just like knocking them down and pushing them over. And they were fighting against the elderly over toilet paper. I'm like, you don't have any Wendy's napkins left or anything in the house? This is wild animals. It's just godless. When you have no purpose, no meaning to your life, you can only care about yourself. When you do not have the Holy Spirit to guide you into truth, to allow you to see others, you can only see yourself. When you can't see God, you can only see yourself. Paul says this later on in Philippians chapter 2, verses 4. I'm going to read from the ESV. Watch this. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of what? Others. That you would have the mind of Christ. And even though Christ was God in flesh, right? Fully God in flesh. He did not consider this something to be grasped. But he made himself of no reputation. And he became a servant. The mind of Christ will always be at war with the mind of the world. The, the, the mind of sensuality, carnality, and self-indulgence. That's the kind of mind I want. That's the kind of mind that we want to have, that we have to continually pray for, that we have this mind of Christ because it's so easy to only care about ourselves and knock somebody over for toilet paper. It happens just like that. I'm sure some of them people went to church. A life lived for God is ultimately a life that will bless others. That's going to give us a little bit of foreshadowing when we start talking about the gospel. And I'm, I'm from, I'm not really from Detroit, but now I live in Detroit. But there's a kind of a, a certain thing that I like to encourage our church whenever we talk. And, and, and whenever I bring up the gospel, I just, I just want you to seethe with energy. We kind of live in a day and time, not here at this church, because you guys are on point. But we live in a day and time now where the gospel is not often talked about. It's kind of like, well, yeah, we already know about it. Jesus died. Okay, cool, cool. Let's move forward. To, to this and that, but, but whenever I begin to talk about the gospel, I just want there to be a new excitement that rises up in you. So I'm going to give you a little foreshadowing. We're going to get to the gospel at the end of this message. I promise I won't end it without getting us there, okay? Let's go to point two. Point two. Out with the old and in with the new. Verse 20. I'm going to read verse 20 through 29. And Paul says, that is not what you learned about Christ. 
since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him. Verse 22, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deceit. 23, instead, let the spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on the new nature created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. 25, so stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth, for we are all parts of the same body. And don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. If you are a thief, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good hard work, and then give generously to others in need. And lastly, verse 29, don't use foul or abusive language. Let everyone you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. Let's just pop to verse 22 here. Paul essentially says there is only one true proper way to respond to the truth that we now have in Jesus. The only true way we can respond is by, is by throwing off the old nature. Throwing off that old man. Throw off the sinful nature and, and, and those thoughts, those attitudes that are uh, at war against this Christ-like character that we are called to walk in. As believers, we must make the choice and take the responsibility by putting on the new man and throwing out the old life, actively walking in this new life. What do I mean by that? Let me just word it like this. We are, as believers, filled with the Holy Spirit. And if you're not a believer, I pray at the end of this, you will be. But when you believe on the Lord Jesus, you are immediately sealed by his Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit does not possess you like a demon where you cannot control yourself, where you're kind of walking around robotically, shaking hands and hugging and greeting people with a holy kiss and forgiving everybody which this way and that way. No, we as believers must yield to the Holy Spirit. We must actively wake up and put on this new Christ-like nature. We must submit to the wheel of the Holy Spirit. But let's be honest, that is very difficult. I heard one pastor say it like this. He says, sometimes when you're trying to walk out in a way that glorifies Christ, that old man like the old vampire kind of like raises back up when somebody cuts you off on the road, right? It just, it just kind of comes. And what's so weird about those old vampire movies, they don't like, like open it and kind of like one foot. It just kind of goes from laying down flat all the way up. That old man comes back. And we have to make the choice to go, no, I'm not going to yield to my flesh. I'm not going to yield to what I think is the right way to respond. No, no, I'm going to yield to the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give in and trust that God knows what's best for me, that God knows my future. He sees where I'm going. Remember that purpose we talked about, that plan that we have, that plan that God has for us. Taking off the old and putting on the new is such a difficult thing to do at times. I'll say it like this. This is kind of off the notes, but practically, 
and I can kind of look around, and I'm not picking on anybody, but you guys are eating around here, and that's good. Texas is known for what? It's what? Barbecue. So I can, so I can speak to this. I'm speaking for the guys, okay? You guys have been eating good, some good barbecue. And, 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 what, and, and just to kind of put us in this mindset of taking off the old and putting on the new, it's important that we buy new underwear as guys, right? Very important, right? You can tell when somebody has new underwear on, right? They just kind of have a, you know, a different, they don't look too comfortable, but you know, something's different about them. The thing is, that old underwear is so comfortable. It's holy and not like sanctified holy, but it's, it's full of holes, right? But it, it, just, it just lays just right. And oftentimes we get used to wearing that old underwear, that, those, those old undergarments. It's like, no, brother, it's time to get some new underwear. Please. I know your wife's been arguing with you about it. Right? It's time to get some new underwear. And what's the interesting thing about, and yes, I have to go here. The interesting thing about new underwear is when you first put it on, it doesn't fit perfectly. You kind of got to do like, you just kind of like, and you're like, oh, this is, they said it was stretch fit, but it doesn't. But, but, but when you first put them on, there's this uneasiness, there's this uncomfortability because you're not used, it doesn't feel like the old stuff, the old garments you wore. But eventually, you get used to it. It becomes the norm. I want the righteous life that I live. We want the righteous life that we live to not be this strange supernatural thing necessarily, but it would be something that is normal to us. Just normal. I remember watching this documentary of, of Michael Jackson and they were interviewing Michael Jackson and he decided in the interview to climb a tree. And the guy who's interviewing was like, hey, what are you doing? And he was like, you don't climb trees? You don't climb trees, and the guy's in with the camera guy, and he's like, yeah, trying to angle it up towards him so we can kind of get him. And, and, and in his mind, he was still a child, and when other people didn't act childlike, he thought it was strange. You don't climb trees? It was normal for him to be in that mindset. I mean, he built a whole theme park, for goodness sakes. I don't want my old nature to be in my closet. And when things don't go the way I want them to, I go out and pull out that old nature and put it back on. I like the way Brother Johnny said it, that I want to take that thing that is separating me from God. I want to take that thing that is stopping me from walking in my fullest purpose, drag it out to the street and kill it. I want the only thing I wear is to be the righteousness of God. I want to wake up in the morning and choose to put on the full armor of God. I'm preaching to you guys like it's Detroit, so I'm sorry. I don't know how you guys usually. I don't know how you usually do it here if you talk about underwear or not, but I'm, I'm preaching to you guys. Like I, he said, make it like I'm at home, so I just kind of see it like that. And I do feel at home. I do feel at home. I really do. In verse 25, Paul says to, to stop lying. He says to stop your past life of dishonesty among your neighbors. 
I don't know about you guys, and maybe you could help me out with this. One of the things I've noticed when I invite people to community, when I invite people to come to church and really experience what this new life is about, to really experience Jesus among other believers, one of the most common things I hear in Detroit is this. I don't want to go to church because church is filled with what? How do we all know that? You've heard it so many times. They go, no, no, I don't, I don't want to go to church because you guys, sometimes you say one thing and you do something else. The church is full of hypocrites, they say. That's why I don't want to go. And Jessica, you know how we do it. I'm like, well, you know what? We could use some more hypocrites. So come on and receive this love, receive this good word, and we're going to bless you. But even the world, the world is not struggling with if your theology is perfect. They're not struggling on if you can really eisegete the text correctly and really do some good expository on uh, Luke and John. They want to know, do you practice what you preach? Do you live it out? That's what the world wants to know. Is it real? It's so important that we make sure as believers that we live a life that is honest and transparent. And it's not just in the way of us just being dishonest or telling lies. I have to let people know who I really am. I don't want to give off this, this facade of self-righteousness, right? That I've got it all together. It's important at times for even the world, the church as well, to see the flaws that we have. It's important to see it's real. In verse 26 through 27, Paul begins to dive deeper into these, 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 these practical elements of unrighteous anger. He says pretty much anger is a doorway for the enemy. And I said it here. Unrighteous anger is always an open door for demonic activity, when you look at what's happening in many of our cities, when you look at what's happening in Minneapolis and other places like that, the chaos, right, the anarchy that's happening in the streets, this chaotic, unbridled rage is a doormat for Lucifer. It's like, come on in. Wherever there's chaos, wherever there's drama, Satan is not too far behind. He's just kind of like, okay, now, now, and he comes right into it every single time. And Paul is saying here, don't give the devil a foothold in your life because of your anger. I, I, I promise I won't get political because that's not what needs to be said here. But I, I, I just see a lot of things that happen on the news. And I'm like, is that spirit led? Is that Christ? When I see cities burning, I'm like, is that Jesus? Is that spirit-led? Is that righteous anger? I like also how he says that this anger, don't let it control you. I don't want to be a part of the wave of cancel culture, right? I don't want to be a a keyboard superhero. 
and, and I'm behind the keys and I'm telling everybody off, telling them where they need to put it and where they can sit it and all this type of stuff because I'm angry because I'm being led by that. No, no. That's not the mind of Christ. That's not the new life. I know some of you are looking like, okay, is he going to go even deeper? I'm just going to keep this message as practically as I can put it. Paul says, if you're a thief, quit stealing. Paul doesn't leave much to the imagination that the mindset and behavior of, of, of taking from others must be replaced with a lifestyle of integrity, of honesty, that for those who have taken must now use those same hands, those same uh, arms, that, that same getaway car to bring people to church, to bring people to God. Use those same hands that were made for taking Forgiving, honest, good work. If anybody could speak of this, if anybody had the right to talk about what a new life would look like, it had to be Paul. Paul had a previous occupation of killing innocent Christians. He, is, he was, excuse me, undoubtedly, unarguably a convicted murderer. And he's telling us by the unction of the Holy Spirit that you can use the things you did for evil for good. That's hope. I can't see your faces behind the mask, you know, but... Some of us have checkered past, right? Some of us have done some things in college and high school. Some of us have had some relationships and done things that we are not proud of. And what often happens is the enemy gets in the midst of that and says, you will always be bound by this. This will always be your mantle over your life of the mistakes you have made. These, 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 these projects of wickedness, these, these, these sinful behaviors and attitudes will always plague you. And just to think, God, I can, I can use my voice not to curse, but to bless. I can use my voice to not sing to anyone else but you, God. That's so hopeful. He's preaching hope to the wretched. What's interesting about this passage in chapter four is, Pastor Zach, a lot of people don't like these sort of passages, right? And the reason why is there's a dislike when people are being told what to do. People don't like the idea of being told how they are to live. They would rather, in many ways, and I'm, I'm guilty of this, hear something spoke in such a way that only pampers them, right? That only tells them how unique and how special they are, where there's only essentially one side of identity. But as Paul is going through chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, and even in chapter four, explaining who we are and what our identity is, identity is two sides of the same coin. It's not just who you are, but it's what you are to do. 
You go, Juwan, give me an example. Okay, I'll give you an example. We have a situation where Jesus is consistently encountering Pharisees, right? Sadducees, scribes alike, who if anybody knows their identity, if anybody knows who they are, it would be the Pharisees, right? The studiers of the law, they had a true understanding of their heritage and Abraham. And Jesus says, your father is the devil. That just knowing who you are is not good enough, if that makes sense. But you have to practice what you preach. That was, that, that was the main issue with the Jews. They understood the scriptures. They knew how to teach it. They knew how to rightly uh, uh, um, put it in its correct order, but they wouldn't live it out. It stayed in who they were, but not who they were to be. It was without love, without grace, without application. Let's go to point number three. Finally, we want to embrace the gospel. Embrace the gospel. In verse 30, it says, and do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, he has identified you as his own. Guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. 31, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as, as, well as all types of evil behavior. And finally, in 32, he says, instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. We don't want to just be hearers of the word, but we want to be doers of the word. I want my character and my life to look like Jesus. Many of us here have children. Many of us here have kids, and many of us were kids at one time, right? So um, we know very well that um, your parents told you a lot of stuff, right? Don't do this. Don't touch that. Don't watch that. Don't eat that, etc., etc. But we can all honestly say that it wasn't only what our parents said to us, but it's what we observed from them that founded who we are today. We were able to look at that and go, you know, mom, I, this, this is something my mom would do all the time. Whenever we would get on the road, and I don't know why she did this, uh, the exit would be coming up. And in my head, I'm like, okay, mom, you need to get over into the lane that's going onto the exit ramp. No, no, no. My mother would wait to the very last, and I, I used to be a driving instructor. My mother would wait to the very last minute, and right as the exit would come up, she would skip one lane, second lane, third lane, all the way into the fourth lane, and then take the exit, and then she would look at me and go, no, you don't do that. Don't do that. That's very unsafe. Very unsafe. People are watching the way we live. I like how in verse 30 it says, do not bring sorrow to the Holy Spirit. 
God is not an emotionless robot. He's not too different in the way he feels from many of us. And Paul is saying, do not let your lifestyle you have chosen, your behavior, grieve the Holy Spirit. I like how when Joseph was in a compromised position and he was told by um, the official's wife to lay with her and he says, I, I can't do this. And he wasn't arguing that I can't do this because I don't want to get caught. His mindset was, how could I do such a thing and sin against God? As believers, we don't want to have a mindset of, I'm just not doing certain things because I don't want to get caught or I don't want to get in trouble. No, I live in such a way because I am in love with Christ. I am married to him. That's the motivation. I don't want to hurt him. I'm not faithful to my wife because I don't want to get caught. I'm faithful to my wife because I care about her. I love her. I don't want to see her in pain. Paul goes on to say, you are not your own, but you belong to the Holy Spirit. You are sons and daughters, children. You are representatives of the kingdom. You are ambassadors for Christ. When you act out of character, and you guys are very familiar with this, when you act out of Christ's character, people don't blame you, they blame God. Isn't that how it works? Something goes wrong and they go, that's why I don't like Christianity. That's why I want nothing to do with them. They, they, they don't address the individual situation. They go directly at fighting and warring with God. It makes me think of, and I won't go into too much detail, but something that recently happened on the news that, that struck me personally. When I look at what happened to RZM Ministries and, and Ravi Zacharias, there were many people, thousands of people who came to know Jesus through that ministry. And when the allegations were brought forth, you can look at the YouTube comments. Many people were saying to themselves, I don't even know if I really believe what I said I believed. Many people walking away because of someone's moral failure. They didn't go, that's what this guy did. They immediately take it as, I want no thing, nothing else to do with God. And I don't want my life to be a hindrance to people who are seeking truth. I don't want my behavior, my attitudes, the things I put on my Instagram, the jokes that I make to be a hindrance for somebody who wants Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 6 and 3, he says, we put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry is not to be discredited. We've worked too hard. And again, I know some of you are saying, Juwan, it's, it's, it's not up to us. When people stand before God, they will stand before him by themselves. Very true. And they will have to be held accountable for their life. Very true. I don't want to be a stumbling block for somebody else. I even love how Paul says, hey, he's like, if, if, eating, if eating meat, I'll just say chicken wings. If, if eating chicken wings is going to cause you to stumble, 
If it's going to be a problem for you, I won't even do it in front of you. If it's going to go against your conscience, if, if something I'm going to do publicly is going to cause you to fall, I won't even do it because Paul wasn't just concerned about himself. He was concerned about the other believers who were following his leadership. Which brings us to, here we go, the gospel. The gospel. Verse 32. I'm going to get ready to end pretty soon here. He says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. We, Antioch Dallas, must embrace the gospel. We must embrace the gospel. I know people are saying what this world needs is more education and, and, and more this and, 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 and more that. We need Jesus. We need the truth. People's hearts need to change. My heart needs to be renewed. To embrace the gospel means to take hold of it. To embody it. If the gospel is true, then I have been made alive in Christ. I have been reconciled, been reconciled back to the Father, back to God by grace through faith. If that is true, I must walk in that way. And I'm going to be honest with you about something, and it's something the Holy Spirit has brought to my attention, and I have been very careful in the way that I've said it, something I'm guilty of. Um, I spend a lot of time encouraging and, and lovingly challenging people in our community to preach the gospel. Preach the gospel when it's raining outside. Preach the gospel when you got makeup on, no makeup on, when your hair is done, not done. Preach the gospel. Point people to Christ. I, I say that so often to supervisors, coworkers, neighbors, the plumber, the electrician, whoever the Holy Spirit leads you to, Preach the good news. But where I was guilty in this is that I would tell people often to preach the gospel, but I didn't put the same emphasis and importance of actually living out the gospel. Some would argue that talk is cheap. I don't want to preach something I haven't personally embodied. The gospel is not just to only be spoken verbally, but it's to be consumed in every area of your life. And as Paul would say here, I would be tenderhearted even to people that look differently than me. And you know what I'm talking about. That I would be kind, I would be forgiving to somebody who may not uh, have been around people that necessarily look like me, right? But I could show grace and mercy so that when they see our Christ-like conduct, they will go, I want to be a part of that. I want to be connected with friends and family. I want to be connected into something that's truly loving. God's church, we have to be a people that is full of grace, mercy, forgiveness, tenderness, 
So when we tell people about the finished work of the cross, when we tell people about the love of Jesus, our character and our behavior would be our credibility. I like the way, and I'm getting ready to close now. I like the way Paul says it years later, or sorry, years prior in Galatians 2 and 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and did what? Gave himself for me. I'm not just trying to become a better version of myself. We are not just trying to become better versions of ourselves. No, we want to become the true versions of ourselves. It's a work that only the Holy Spirit can do when we yield to him and allow him to take over. I just want to say this before we close, to be an encouragement. A lot of times when we read through a, a passage like this, it can often feel like God is trying to stop us from having fun, right? It's like, man, I, that's what I don't like about the Bible, man. It's just a book of rules, right? That's how some people view the scripture, just a book of rules of, of stuff I should or shouldn't do. I, I don't have any time for that. But God has a desire for us as his children to live in the fullness of life. The fullness. I don't know about you guys, but like, and I, I know some of you guys would go, well, I've never eaten McDonald's. They sell like four billion hamburgers a day. Somebody in here is eating it, okay? But you know how it is. When you get a box of french fries, you go, I want a, a number two, large. You say it, you look at the guy, you look at the lady, large. And then you get in the car and you're driving off two, three miles down the line and you look and, and, and you notice that that large box of McDonald's french fries is only halfway filled. I'm kind of like the person who I'll, I'll turn around six, seven miles and go, no, no, no. I want to watch you fill it up to the top. I got a wife. My wife takes about 25% of everything I eat. You got to fill that box up to the top. You, you got to. I'll starve if you don't. And it's so important as believers that we don't have this visceral reaction so when God is calling us into a place of holiness and sanctification, but to be thrilled, excited, and happy to go, I can put on a new life, that that old me can truly die and be dead for good. And that in that me doing this, I can experience the fullness of life. Could you imagine playing football and there were no rules? You couldn't really enjoy the game, right? If everybody was just throwing the ball this way and kicking the ball into the crowd, you would go, what are we, this is chaos. But when there's order, you can truly enjoy the game that our lives represent Christ. Just put on that new nature every day. And when you feel like, this is the last thing I'll say, I'm sorry, Pastor Zach, you, you said it treated like family. And usually I say, I'm getting ready to close. And 30 minutes later, I walk off stage. 
when you feel that you are struggling in that old man, struggling in that old nature, we can trust and rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to make us new. Remember that, hold to that. Be confident in that thing. Let's go ahead and enter into a time of response. Let's go ahead and stand to our feet.